Well, it's good to see that you all love each other. (laughs) I've got to move things along, though, so that I can send you home at some point. Uh, Let me encourage and embarrass a couple of people all at the same time. Uh, I saw uh, that last week Jessica Campilla and Sean Sprague got married, and they're here. Would you guys stand up for a minute? We're happy for you. Yep. And uh, a week ago, Gary Drinkwater was bursting with joy. Gary and April's son, Scott, graduated from the police academy, so we wanted to congratulate you guys, too. I should tell you that Patrick Marks, who was just up here dedicating his son, is also a state police officer, so be nice to the state police officers when they invite you over to the other side of the road. Be nice to them. They're doing their job. And we know a few of them. Let's read from Colossians chapter 2. I'll read this for you. This is Colossians 2, starting with verse 16. Think of what we talked about last Sunday, where we, we talked about Jesus' victory on the cross, and there's this phenomenal two verses in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, where it says that Jesus triumphed over the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them with the victory of the cross, even though at the time the cross seemed like the ultimate defeat. Now, on the heels of that, we read this warning that comes. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow." Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. We're going to dive into these warnings and what they meant then and what they mean for us today, but let's pray before we do that. God in heaven, thank you for caring enough to send Jesus into this world. We have already uh, participated in some ceremonies that are very powerful in the way that they create memories of a child being dedicated and parents dedicating themselves to raise this child and calling for your spirit to work in a boy's life from the earliest days. And then the the sharing of the bread and the cup, which not only remind us but invite us to think through how we invite the presence of Jesus fully into our lives, that Jesus needs to be in us and through us, and we need to be lost in him. Use today, Lord, to form the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, and the spirit of Christ in us. 
We know this is your goal. Your goal isn't that we would just come to church services and endure. Your goal isn't that we would just read the Bible and let it run through our minds and then forget it as the week goes by. Your goal is that we would become more and more like Jesus and that the the life that you have come to give, which we apprehend by faith, would become more real, more powerful, more full, for you have given us the fullness of Christ. And in Christ, we know the fullness of the deity dwells. This week, Lord, as we walk through our days and through our challenges wherever we go, we ask that you would help us to live with the presence of Christ, bringing peace into every chaotic moment, bringing truth into every confusing moment, bringing light into every dark moment. We pray for wisdom and help, and we also pray that you would give us a consciousness of just how much Jesus wants to dwell with us and doesn't want us to be shortchanged in any way. Lord, we ask that you would continue to walk with those who are struggling with, with ongoing health crises. We pray for our friend Karen Noth Shelley in her long-term battle with cancer. We, we pray for, for Barb Candlish and ask that you would continue to restore her body's ability to fight off all of the, the infections that come. And Lord, we pray for others who may be suffering in silence here this morning, haven't told anybody else, but they're struggling. We thank you for those who made great efforts to get here, despite surgeries, despite other difficulties that have come. And we ask that in the quiet stretches of each day that you would continue to whisper to us the truths that tell us that we are yours, that we belong to you, that our faith is in something that is real, that you love us, and that you will lead us well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're at the end of a weekend where all around the United States we have been celebrating the Declaration of Independence from the rule, unfair taxation, and brutal enforcement imposed by the King of England and the British Empire all the way back in 1776. You may be aware of some of this, you may have forgotten some of it, but a handful of events led to this declaration by the 13 American colonies. There was the Stamp Act of 1765, the Townsend Acts of 1767 to 68, which placed indirect taxes on all kinds of substances which were necessary for life, lead, glass, paint, paper, and especially tea. In response to the Townsend Acts, Many of the colonials began a long boycott of British tea. That ended up sparking the Boston Massacre in 1770. And then the Tea Act of 1773 was passed, which allowed the British East India Company to ship tea directly into colonial harbors like Boston and bypass all of the local owners and merchants who were boycotting that tea. So the British ship Dartmouth arrived secretly one night in Boston loaded with tea, Then in December 1773, a little party in Boston Harbor that we like to call the Boston Tea Party took place. And in 1774, just a few months later, things ratcheted up even more greatly. General Thomas Gage dissolved the Provincial Assembly in Boston and closed Boston Harbor, and all signs pointed to a growing sense of danger. And then something very dramatic happened 
that all of you know about on April 18, 1775. Dr. Joseph Warren passed news to Paul Revere and William Dawes that British regulars were boarding boats from Boston to Cambridge to access the road to Lexington and Concord, where the British had discovered that there was a great store of arms and, and of powder, and they planned to capture or destroy the supplies of the colonial militia known as Minutemen. With two warning lights placed in the steeple of Old North Church, Revere slipped through Boston Harbor in a rowboat, making his way to Charlestown. And then he rode through several towns, letting patriots know in each of those towns that the regulars are coming. Historians now believe that it's very, very unlikely that Revere shouted the news the way that the poem declares, because his entire success depended on secrecy. In fact, before the morning would come, Revere would be arrested and detained by the British troops, but on their way to Lexington, they didn't have the means to imprison him, so they took his horse and set him on his way. Before that, by midnight, Revere and Dawes had both arrived in Lexington, and more than 40 other riders were dispatched to every town around Boston with the news. That leads to a question. Do you know why we love the story of Paul Revere so much? It's not just because we live nearby. It's not just because many of us were born here. It's because Paul Revere sounded the alarm in a time of clear and present danger at great personal risk. He sounded the alarm. I chose to bring all of this up this morning for two reasons. The first is because we just celebrated Independence Day on July 4th our most distinctly American holiday. But that spirit of sounding the alarm ties into what Paul writes next here in our look at this letter to the Colossian church written somewhere about 56 or 57 AD. As we continue this summer series, we come to a passage in Colossians chapter 2 where Paul sounds an alarm about a danger that is quickly on the horizon. This is the fifth part of our Getting Clear on Jesus series, and today's theme is Jesus and threats to freedom, or Jesus versus threats to to freedom. Here's the big idea that I want to get across and that will run through this morning's message. People who realize that Jesus is enough have no need for spiritual add-ons. I'll explain what that means in a minute, but they have no need to add anything to Jesus. Paul presents here, first of all, two threats to freedom in Christ. The freedom was what we celebrated last week with this triumph on the cross where all of our sins are taken to the cross. They are paid for once and forever. Paul writes that they are nailed to that cross. And yet there are two freedoms that he instantly wants to warn us that are in danger. First, he says in verse 16, don't let anyone judge you. The fuller context is don't let anyone judge you by their rituals. Verse 16 says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Let's be clear about what Paul was saying here. There are times when Christians are asked and expected to make judgments. We are constantly called to discern or to judge between right and wrong. Sometimes Christian friends are called to warn or even rebuke each other so that we stay on the right path for productive lives, and they don't shipwreck our lives. But here we are warned not to let others pass judgment over us in regard to religious rituals. More than 20 years had passed since Peter 
had received that message from the Lord in a dream telling him that now all foods were clean even for Jewish followers of Jesus. And so now for more than eight or nine years that had passed since the Jerusalem Council's decision that told Jewish Christians to stop fighting with Gentile Christians over food restrictions, we find that this issue keeps coming back to another church in another place. In our day, the concern would be more like judging other Christians over second-tier customs. Generations of early Christian scholars sifted through theological disagreements in order to find something that they called the great tradition. Well, what was the great tradition? The great tradition was a general consensus on truths that virtually all Christians believed. What have virtually all Christians through the ages affirmed? Well, that God is one, yet exists in three distinct persons. That the human race was created good, not bad, good, but has become seriously flawed by sin. That God loves people and wants to redeem them and give them new life in Christ. That Jesus was the Son of God who came in the flesh. That Jesus healed people with an authority given by the Father. That Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. He was Christ on earth. That Jesus died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, and was raised on the third day. That through the faithfulness of Jesus and through faith in Jesus, we are saved from our sins. That Jesus is the head of the church. And that Christians naturally submit to his leadership. That Christians are called to love God, love other people, and in doing so, to little by little change the world. And that Jesus is coming again, this time to judge the world and to gather his kingdom. There's an old maxim that says all beliefs are important, but not all are equally important. And so it means that we hold our specific beliefs over secondary things, but we don't judge others according to them. What does that mean? It means that we don't reject, judge, or condemn other Christians who may differ over the way that we do baptism. We don't judge, reject, or condemn other Christians over whether there is wine or grape juice in the cup. We don't judge, reject, or condemn other Christians, whether they sing hymns or contemporary choruses, no matter which brand you like better, or whether they worship on Friday night or Saturday night or Sunday morning. I always loved one of the churches that I learned about in Denver when I was studying there. They had a church on Thursday night for people who worked weekends. They had another church that met on, on Friday nights for people who spoke Spanish and then on Sunday, they had three completely different services, and they all differed over the worship style. One church, five different expressions, all meeting in the same building. And what they found was in their context and in their culture, that one church was able to meet several different needs because of the rapid changes going through the, the mix of, of that area. concept is don't let anyone convince you that your faith is not real or genuine or authentic because you do not practice their rituals. That's the first warning. The second warning that Paul gives shows, shows up in verse 18, and here he says, don't let anyone disqualify you. A little larger portion of that verse reads this way, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. There is a word picture here that is found in this key verb, disqualify. It literally pictures being thrown out of a contest by an umpire. 
Did you read the story a few days ago about a 70-year-old marathoner on the West Coast whose race time was thrown out because it appears that he pulled a Rosie Ruiz during the race? This man set the all-time marathon record for men who are 70 and above. But it was such an amazing time, less than three hours, that for a man that age that they thought something might be off. The officials went back and they looked at camera records at key checkpoints and they found this man leaving the official course at some point during the race. He claimed that he left the course in order to to look for a bathroom, but he skipped all the official outhouses that were provided nearby. They determined that he must have taken a ride or a cab or somebody gave him a lift to a later point in the race, which allowed him to finish in less than three hours. People who judge others with unfair or unfounded criticism is what Paul is talking about here. And people who do those things simply want to, knock, to excuse me, knock you out of the, the Christian race. <clears throat> the Pharisees were like that. This is why Jesus was so hard on them. They set up all kinds of picky rules in order to control people. They did everything they could to force people to orient their lives and their worship around the rules and customs and rituals that they set up. And if someone didn't go along with their rules, they wanted to take them down, and that's exactly what they tried to do with Jesus. So Paul was sounding the alarm for these Colossian Christians. The danger was in the air from these two primary threats to Christian freedom, the threat of judgment according to man-made rules and the threat of disqualification by being knocked out of the race. It's in that context that Paul also brings up three dangerous add-ons to Christian faith. Joseph Rogers of Peachtree City, Georgia, a pastor in a Baptist church there, calls these the three amigos of pseudo-religion. I love that that title, the three amigos of pseudo-religion. They are recurring dangers because they keep coming back in vogue every few decades. I am calling them add-ons because each one tries to add something to Jesus, which goes against the informal theme of our series that Jesus is enough. In effect, the motto of the people behind the add-ons is, Jesus is not enough, so let us try to give you something else to bring you to where you need to be. Here are the three add-ons. I'll run through them quickly. The first is legalism. And legalism is about Jesus plus rituals. Now, now hear me out. We're not saying that all rituals are bad. We just celebrated two of them with an infant dedication and communion. But when we condemn people or judge people over the way that rituals are practiced or held out or which ones we choose to practice or not practice, that's when we get into trouble. Here's what Paul writes, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul is clearly telling us to choose Christ rather than the rituals that lock us into patterns of obligation. Joseph Rogers, who I quoted a moment ago with his statement, The Three Amigos, goes on to say, Man has a terrible time accepting grace without some effort on his own. Furthermore, man has an instinctive nature that once he has received grace, he must possess enough religion to retain his salvation. This is the danger. There's this natural inclination to add something to Jesus rather than accept the simple gospel that he has done everything that is necessary for us. All of these items that are listed here in this paragraph were worship patterns from the Old Covenant era. 
All of them at one time were enacted or commanded with the blessing of God, and so they were essentially good. Therefore, it was permissible, even in the day that Paul was writing, for people to worship through these rituals. Each of them pointed in some way to Christ. The sacrifices that were offered at uh, every new moon were intended to say that we need a Savior and somebody who will end this need for more and more sacrifices. It pointed to the cross in that way. The sacrifices, the Sabbath rest, each of the major Jewish festivals pictured Christ in some way. This is why Paul now calls them shadows of things that were to come. This group, in effect, says, Jesus plus our rules and rituals will get you into God's favor. And Paul is saying, don't buy that for a minute. Jesus is enough. The second of these recurring add-ons is mysticism. In mysticism, the cry is Jesus plus other spirits, as if, again, to say Jesus isn't enough. So Paul says, Don't, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. And then he, le- he, he levels this conclusion They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body support and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Paul returns to one of the primary reasons for this letter with this warning. The teaching of the Gnostics and their higher wisdom sounded enticing. Oh, you got the early teaching about Jesus, but let me tell you about the higher teaching, they would say. Their philosophy that drove this was that Jesus couldn't possibly be enough because he was too worldly. He took on human flesh after all. He was like Garth Brooks, too many friends in low places. So they envisioned higher beings that were needed, angels or some other spiritual beings who were greater than Jesus and who could take us to God. And soon what would happen if you start listening to these other forces you no longer need Jesus. So Paul writes something really significant here. He says of these teachers, they have lost connection with the head. They have lost connection with the head. It's an insult. It's a picture of a body that's running around headless, not knowing where it's going, somehow kept alive by the, the last impulses of life that are still alive in the body. Jesus was reminding the church folks that a Christian's life is hidden with God in Christ whenever he brought up things like the body of Christ. We are part of the body of Christ. That phrase, that image is used several different ways in the New Testament to describe the church, to describe Jesus offering his own life for us that we remember in our communion celebration. But to be healthy and alive, the body always needs to be connected to the head. And so Paul is saying, if they cut out Jesus and if they start to focus on these other spirits, they've lost connection to the head because Jesus is the head of the church. And when you lose connection to the head, you have no direction, you have no sense, you have no understanding. So the mystic says, Jesus plus help from an angel or some higher being is what you need to look for next. Most people think this stuff doesn't take place any longer. But we would be wrong to assume that. A few years ago, we had a person here at North River tell me that she was a medium. She gave me her book even, and I read through it. She liked what she saw here at North River, loved this environment of grace and mercy and growth. 
and wanted to be a part of that and hoped that we could include her ministry as a medium here as well. When I said, I'd really love to sit down with you and talk with you and have you study the New Testament with me, she wanted no part of that and she was gone. It happens. It just keeps coming back in, an, in different packaging every few years. Anyone who believes that Jesus is enough will not fall for the seduction of mysticism. And then the, the third of these recurring add-ons, these three amigos, is asceticism. Asceticism teaches about Jesus plus self-punishment. And look at what he writes here in verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. What rules was he talking about? He was talking about self-imposed rules that came from ascetic teachers. I'll explain that in a minute. He goes on in verse 22 to say, these rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul cites three marks of the ascetic movement. Self-imposed worship, false humility, and harsh treatment of their own bodies. Good biblical theology holds that the body is good and that limited self-denial is good for developing discipline. So an athlete takes care of his or her body, stays away from sweets, and denies himself or herself freedoms that some other people may enjoy for a season, stripping away whatever is not good for the diet or good for training or good for the competition that is coming. Self-denial was something that Jesus taught. The early foundations of the monastic movement in early Christianity provide an example of why asceticism failed. In the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D., it was thought that the best model for a pious life came by getting away from people, getting away from worldly influences, and so there are a number of monks who lived in caves. Silent Stylides spent 39 years living on a platform on the top of a pole, having his food uh, hoisted up to him by a rope and a pulley. And others did some very extreme things, believing that they would become more holy if they had less and less contact with people. How does that sound to you? Is that the pattern of Jesus? Did Jesus pursue holiness by simply getting away from people and staying away? No. He got away for a short season, for a break, to focus on the Lord, for times of prayer, and then he came back because ministry was meant to be done in the context of relationships. And you and I are not called to go be holy in a cave somewhere. We are called to live in this world and to have an impact on the people that we love about by living out our faith where it is hard, where it is seen, where it is known, in this real world. The, monastic, the uh, ascetic movement ultimately failed and was abandoned when the monks realized that those who remove themselves from society never get to live out their faith in that context of community. And so they developed intentional communities that became monasteries instead of far and vastly different and more effective means in church history. The problem with all the three amigos is that they end up enslaving us if good things are taken to extremes. 
And that's what Paul was warning about. Good things that can be taken to extremes. Were there people who got special messages from God like prophets? Yes, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But he's saying, don't keep looking for mystics who give you truth that goes beyond Jesus. You leave Jesus, you become disconnected from the head at that point. Don't beat yourself up with self-flagellation or self-harm. That's not self-denial. That is self-destruction. And here's the conclusion that Paul is, is reaching here in these, these uh, several verses. Jesus plus nothing else is enough. Jesus plus nothing else is enough. And people who realize that Jesus is enough have no need for spiritual add-ons. This is what it means when we talked a couple of weeks ago where Paul says God was pleased to have all his fullness, all the fullness of the deity dwell in Jesus. The Jesus you find in the scriptures is the real Jesus, the fullness of God. And the message of the church from the days of Jesus and the apostles right till now is Jesus is enough no matter how seductive the next new idea comes. Let's stay rooted in the truth of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for clear warnings that come up every once in a while in the midst of these glorious statements that explain to us why faith is needed and why the gospel is powerful. Warnings that there are other people that try to introduce other ideas that get added on to Jesus, and every time they try to strip away the simple power of the gospel and the simple effectiveness of the cross. Keep us focused on Jesus. Keep our faith simple, Lord, so that we will walk in the ancient truths that have been handed down to us through the generations. Thank you for warnings that come in Scripture. Thank you that they apply even to the way that we live and to the challenges we face today. And I pray that you will make everybody here wise unto salvation and that you will not allow a single one of us to be disqualified from the race that you have called us to win. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.